0: Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine, that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching a message from Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty, and the message is called "Christ Fulfilled the Law for Us." We hope you are blessed by the message today. Heavenly Father, we we really greatly need your help as we do every. We open your word, so give us ears to hear what your truth is, and Lord, that we would not mix in what we would consider uh, our truth. Lord, we don't agree with the world that truth is relative, we believe firmly that truth is what is found in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God. So help us now to just look very clearly and intently at what your word says today about these things that we're talking about. Lord, we are so grateful to be your church. But Lord, we come in here, all of us, Lord, with things on our heart, issues, struggles, hardship, um, turmoil, sickness, um, all sorts of things that just weigh heavy. So Lord, would you lift those burdens? And, And Lord, may we receive the invitation of Christ that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, as we rest in you today, fill us up and strengthen us with your word. Give us full attention, no distraction. Help us to fight against the distractions in our hearts and to say, Lord, I give you this time. I will listen to you and I will obey your word. Help us, Lord. We need your help. Spirit, be our teacher. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So quick question to start. What, What? place should the law of God have in a Christian's life? That's, a, uh, I think, a question that Christians often wrestle with. Or at some point in their discipleship, in their growth in Christ, they come to this place where they realize that there are varying styles of writing, different parts of the Bible, and then somewhere along the lines, they, they hear that the Old Testament, uh, that was for the past, And so then somewhere along the lines, they start thinking, well, does that even apply to me? What does the law of God have to do with my life? When I speak of the law, what I'm saying is the law as in the commands of Scripture, particularly given in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is speaking about in our context today, trying to bring clarity to his audience as he's teaching. And so we as the audience today, under the Lord Jesus and by his spirit, would be listening to how he teaches us today about the law. If you've ever thought things like, oh, that's in the Old Testament. I don't have to do that anymore. Or, we're under grace now, so the law doesn't apply to us. If you've ever thought, or said, or heard, or even leaned in that direction, then you do know how important this conversation is to understand the difference and where this applies to us and the reason one real practical reason is because we own bibles and we open them in our homes and i think oftentimes we if we're real honest we struggle now some of us i've heard just adore the old testament adore it and that's a good place others of us have to wrestle to read the old testament and sometimes i think it's a conviction it's what is there for us does it even apply to me so that's some of the things we'll sort of talk through And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing as he continues this famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He comes out of the the Beatitudes, and and now we're moving into uh, some real interesting uh, stuff relating to the law. And Jesus begins to interpret to his audience um, some things that we can really benefit from. So, clearly, because he's addressing, if you look at uh, chapter 5, look at verse 17, he begins by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So just by that opening statement, we can deduce that there were people in that audience, in that crowd, that were thinking that. The thoughts were going in that direction. What happens now to the law and the prophets? What happens? If you're a Jewish person and you're sitting there listening to the teachings of Jesus and you know something has happened, the kingdom has come, he's giving these new kingdom attitudes, the question would come across your mind, what now happens to the law and the prophets? And his answer to this question is crucial to understanding the gospel. For us to understand, not just understand it, but grasp it, believe it, live it out. And this is important for that. So he says... Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's Matthew five seventeen. Kind of uh, difficult to be any clearer than that if we just ask the question, what is Jesus' heart towards the law in the Old Testament? He tells us very clearly, I have not come to abolish them concerning the law, but I've come to fulfill them. So is the law done away with because Christ came and established his kingdom? The way he tells us to deal with this is immediately in our thoughts. He says, don't even think that way. It's a very clear and strong statement. So if we are thinking that way, we can listen to Christ today in his word and say, I shouldn't think that way. And let me figure out then how it does apply to my life. How am I to think of the law now that I am a Christian, a New Testament, New Covenant believer in the Lord Jesus? Now, so that we're clear on the terms, the law that Jesus is referring to is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets are the rest of it. Those words that were spoken by those men that God called, and they look forward. They spoke of the Messiah to come. They heard from God, and they spoke what was to come, ultimately speaking of the future kingdom and the coming of the Lord Jesus. The law and the prophets, extremely important. So, what happens to these really monumental collections of God's heart and will now that the Son of God is here? What happens to these, this, when I say monumental collection, and we're talking a lot of material, It's a lot when you compare Old Testament to new. So what happens now that Christ is here? The Son of God has come. What what do we do now? Not only is Jesus not doing away with them, but he tells us he came to fulfill them. And this is the key to what we're supposed to understand and how we begin to get a a real full and a blessed picture of the gospel. Hopefully by the end of this, we're just again, once again, church, rejoicing in our salvation, rejoicing in the gospel. And by looking at the law, we get a full picture of that. So we learn this. Jesus does not oppose the Old Testament scripture. By his words... Even in just that first verse that we've read, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We can, without a doubt, say Jesus does not oppose Old Testament Scripture, but stands in favor of them. You might not think that's extremely important to you right now and relevant to you, but there, just so you know, there are teachers of the Scripture, pastors, Places in our country and around the world that actually say and teach the opposite. And there are people with a misunderstanding of the gospel for sure all over the place. Perhaps you have this today or you have at one point that Jesus is teaching a completely different message that might even contradict what was said before. The second thing we can learn is Jesus' commands do not contradict the law of God, there is no contradiction. In fact, what we're going to see later is that Jesus brings a fuller interpretation to what the law and the prophets were actually saying. And so we can just sort of understand that right off the bat. He's not opposed to the Old Testament. In fact, he stands in favor of them. And his commands do not contradict the law of God. His teaching unfolds. As his teaching unfolds, we're going to see that the opposite of true is true. Jesus takes what was common knowledge to the Jews... In the command of Scripture, and in fact, in fact, Jesus makes it even harder to fulfill them. He, what he does in interpreting the Scripture, contrary to popular belief, Jesus doesn't actually make it easier to obey the commands. He makes it harder. But by understanding the gospel, there's great freedom. So again, we have to look at it through the gospel. Look at verse 18. A couple things to note in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So let's just pay attention to a couple things here. First of all, in this text, we note that heaven and earth are going to pass away. There is a fact in Scripture that heaven and earth, as we know it, at least the way we know it today, Will pass away, but until then, God is saying to us his people, there is a plan and a purpose in the law, in the word of God, in all that God says, there's a plan and a purpose to be accomplished before that day comes, before heaven and earth pass away. The law, God's commands and his will as revealed in his word will be fulfilled. That is a great promise. How firm, how established, how true, how necessary is all of God's word? So much so that Jesus elevated to this level down to the very dot and iota of the Hebrew written language. To the very detail, down to the smallest detail will be fulfilled. Jesus said these famous words, truly I say unto you. A common phrase that Christ would bring at times, which is like starting a sentence with the word "Amen." That's, that's basically what he's doing. Truly, I say unto you, let this be so. This is established. Now we already know that Jesus is a truth teller; he cannot lie, does not lie. There is no sin in him. So, how important is it when Jesus, the truth, says, "I'm telling you the truth"? It doesn't even need to be said, but oftentimes he would say, truly, truly. In fact, this one is just one truly. Other times he'd say, amen, amen, truly, truly. This is so true. Please listen. uh, I think we should pay attention. I say to you, this well-placed truly is to give us strong assurance in the fact that God's word will accomplish all that it was intended to accomplish. Namely, and most importantly, as it concerns Jesus Christ and God's redemptive plan in the world. They will come to pass. It will be established. The specificity is in his mentioning of the iota and the dot. Not one of them will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, these are referring to a small letter, the in fact, the smallest letter of the, Hebrew le- of the Hebrew alphabet, and a Hebrew mark. Just a little mark called, in some of your translations, the tittle. Not a jot, not a tittle. Maybe the King James, New King James. And that was an actual mark that if you look at the Hebrew writing, there would be one letter and another letter next to it, and the only difference was a little boop, that's it. And that's the tittle. All right? And that's just to say, again, that's impressive. That's an amazing thing, the detail. How much Christ was, one, he loved the law. He did. He loved the law. He loved the word of God. He kept it perfectly. And this is his care and his love for it. And what he would say to his disciples and to all who are listening, right down to the iota and the dot, none will pass away until all is accomplished. The slightest of Mark's. Now God's law is perfect to accomplish what God intended. Now don't misunderstand, we are Christians and the mark of a Christian according to Jesus is this. This is one of the marks at least. John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. I need to get rid of the thought that as Christians, do I really have to think about the commands of God? I mean, am I not just free and saved under grace? According to Jesus, don't even think that way. Christ said it, established many times, and so did other places in the scripture, that the word of God and the commands of God are good. So much so that we need to, it is a test of our love for him. For someone to say, I love God, and to not keep his commands, or to not value his word and love his word and keep his word, is a sign that you don't love him. How many people say, I love Jesus, yet they do not keep his word? It is a test of your love for Christ. It's not saying you only love him if you keep his word perfectly. That's where the gospel comes in, and we will address that. But for a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, one of the the top thing in your life is going to be to revere his word, to love his word Now, there are two extremes that form on either side of this issue. You've probably heard of them. One side is called legalism. The other side, a little bit of a less used word in our common culture, antinomianism. It's just a big word that just means against God's law. Against God's law. There is those that are highly in favor of God's law on one end of that pendulum, legalists, and then there are antinomianists. Now, legalism is essentially the attempt to secure righteousness through adherence to the law of God. Understand that that's that's the important part of the definition. It's the attempt to secure righteousness before God by obeying his law, doing it to such a degree that you would earn his favor by your obedience. And legalism is a heavy extreme of that, that by adherence to the law, you Gain righteousness. Now, on the opposite side of that, antinomianism is the belief that under God's saving grace, we are released from any obligation to the moral law of God. We're released from it. Because of God's grace, there's not even an obligation. So much under grace that the law doesn't even apply to us anymore. So, why even listen to it? Both of these are extremes. So, how do we settle this? With God's Word. We're going to look at God's word. Legalism in the sense that keeping any law or doing any work can secure righteousness goes against the clear gospel. Galatians 2.16 makes it very clear. There's other places, so take note and then maybe let this just sort of launch you into a study this week if you'd like. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Justified, just being another word for salvation, being made right before God, being announced and pronounced as guiltless before Him, cannot come through our own work. I don't think that can be clearer. On the other hand, antinomianism has its own way of ruining the clarity of the gospel. If we are not obligated to obey the law of Moses in any way because Christ has come and died for us, then, number one, what do we do with Matthew 5 that just clearly stated Christ's view of the law? We have to throw it out to say there's no way antinomianism way to say the law does not apply because Jesus himself in his teaching to the kingdom, people of God, says I have not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. And he establishes it even in, in an even greater way. And secondly, a Christian who is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, so under grace, has not been freed from obligation to obey, but from the ultimate penalty of disobedience to the law. That's where the freedom is actually tied to. So don't get to to the point where you're thinking, well, under grace, I'm free from having to keep the law. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that under grace, you're free from the penalty of disobeying the law. We all fall short of God's glory. We all break his law. We all sin, and it is so apparent that when God's law is the standard, we are so weak but the grace that we've been given, this under grace thing, where the freedom is, is that we are no longer held under the penalty that we deserve. Paul makes this case in many places, but I want to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter six, so turn over there. We're going to just work through a few verses, then we'll, jump, we'll get back to Matthew five, and hopefully it'll sort of all wrap into a nice package to help us understand this better. But Romans chapter six Beginning in verse 15, we're going to go to verse 23. It begins by saying, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So pause there for a moment, and this is how I'm going to work through this section. I'm going to comment as we work through. Recognize being asked rhetorically, should we now break the law of God just because grace has arrived to set us free? should we now is this something that we are allowed to do because grace has freed us and the answer of course as he moves on through the text he says by by no means does it mean that do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin which leads to righteousness and so, think about that. Not only does grace not permit us to go on sinning, but grace frees us to see that obedience to God is the right thing. Grace frees us to see that obedience to God is right and leads to more freedom. That's where the freedom lies. In the text he says, but be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So notice where the true freedom lies. Free from sin, not from the law. Free from sin is the emphasis. Free from the weight of guilt we had in our breaking of God's law and free to live lives pleasing to God as slaves of righteousness. That's where the freedom is, to now live for Him and obey Him, understanding that obedience to Him is right and making ourselves slaves to righteousness. Slaves to what is good. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There was once a time where you did not even regard righteousness as an importance in your life. You were free from it. And that's the ultimate point. Even Paul, as he ends this, this little brief section as he's talking about this, that's where he ends. Is the free gift of God is eternal life in who? It's all about Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. That's the ultimate point. It's through Jesus, through faith in Christ, we receive a gift that pays the price of sin that we owed. And it frees us from bondage to that sin and frees us to live rightly before God we need that freedom we need freedom there are christians in this room that are in bondage to things that they should not be there are christians all the time we need to we need this we need this scripture to speak to our hearts and enliven us enlighten our minds to see the truth and to love christ and his word and truly find freedom being free from those things that we obligate ourselves to, those things that we say, I can't help but do this thing. Well, yes, you can. In Christ, you can be freed from those things, those thoughts that the flesh still influences, the old you that still needs sanctification, the part of you that's like, well, I do this because it's just who I am. It's It's just what I want to do. Just so you know, if you just do something because you want it or you like it, what evidence is there is that, you're, that you're doing it because Christ wants it or likes it or desires it? And so the freedom that scripture is talking about is that as a life aligns with the will of God and loves his righteousness more than anything else. And that's what we want. So that, that should be a prayer of ours, brothers and sisters. Pray this, pray. Let it be a prayer of your God. Free me from those things that I am bound to that do not please you. And God, give me true freedom that loves the righteousness of Christ as it is revealed in the word of Christ. And daily seek to align yourself with that. So, both sides of that, Scripture condemns legalism and antinomianism. Righteousness before God cannot be earned, and the law of God is still good for the Christian. And that only makes sense Truly, when we understand the gospel, it only really begins to make sense and be clear to us. So wait a minute, so the law is still good for me, but I can't earn my righteousness, so by doing more of God's law, by obeying his word, it doesn't earn me anything. So what do I do? And sometimes I think we can find ourselves at an impasse, not really sure what to do or what what really our lives should look like. So we actually spend so much time just arguing with ourselves Like, do I really need to obey this thing that God's telling me to do? Because he does forgive me, and and that's a bad place to be, just so you know. (laughs) It's not a good place. So we're going to hopefully clarify that. So Matthew, back to Matthew 5, look at verse 18 again. Ask this question, how important is the law to Jesus? Well, he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He is pro Old Testament law, right down to the smallest stroke of a pen. So, this second part of him fulfilling the law, this is an amazing part. This is good. Pay it. If you didn't pay attention until now, that's fine. Just pay attention now, okay? But this is, like, this is where it starts to come together, and it's sweet. You know, just so you know, sometimes you have to eat something that tastes a little bitter. You really some some of God's word, it's bitter at first. It's bitter at first, but there is sweetness in our obedience to it and in our love for Christ. If we're seeing it through God's eyes and we're seeing it through the through the gospel, there's sweetness there. So chew on that, even if it's bitter. How is the law fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus? He said, I've not come to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. It will all be accomplished. So we're gonna work through a a few points, and then there's gonna be some uh, supporting scripture that sort of undergirds all of it. Point number one, how is the law accomplished in Jesus? The law is fulfilled in Christ because he is the substance of what the law and the prophets foreshadowed. He is the substance. He literally filled up what was lacking. He made clear all that was mysterious, mysterious in the sacrifices, in the temple, was there at the Holy of Holies, the feasts, all of it. Jesus makes it all clear. In him, there is access. He is the sacrifice. After his death, the veil was torn. What was that signifying? You can't get to God without Jesus Christ. He makes it clear. He says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make those who draw near. What's the implication? That by Christ's sacrifice and the substance that he is, he can make perfect those who draw near to him. So he fulfills... This by being the substance of what the law and the prophets foreshadowed. Secondly, the law is fulfilled in Christ because He perfectly obeyed its legal and moral demands. Jesus did perfectly what you cannot. So if this feels like a heavy weight, remember the gospel. So this is how you preach the gospel to yourself. Let me get real practical with you. If you struggle with the weight of demands, if you're like, "Well, I can't do this," I hear preaching, I hear God's word, I see all these Christians that are doing this and, this and that. I can't handle it. Jesus can. Jesus did. He fulfilled it perfectly. You're not comparing yourself with other people. You're looking to Christ as Savior. He fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus was not only without moral failure, but He was also the embodiment of truth and righteousness. He himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth, the embodiment of righteousness and rightness. The law was fulfilled in Christ because he perfectly obeyed its legal and moral demands. Thirdly, the law and prophets fulfilled in Christ in that he is the one the prophets looked forward to. He is the promised one. As they made promises, they were looking forward to Christ. He was the promised one. Luke twenty four forty four says, Then he said to them, remember the road to Emmaus? This is what Jesus says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What did he just say? It's all about me. Everything in the law and prophet, in the law and the prophets, it was written about me. And it will it will be fulfilled. Fourthly, Christ fulfilled. Now listen to this one. This is so so good. He fulfilled the penalty of the law by becoming a sacrifice for sinners. He fulfilled the penalty of the law by becoming a sacrifice for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. I want you to just think for a moment what that would be like, feel like, what it was like for Christ who never knew sin he became sin think of your smallest mistake your smallest sin and offense against god whatever that might be even that to pure righteousness what would that feel like on perfection a truly righteous man and yet he took and became the epitome of sin upon the cross so that the Father's wrath would be poured out all upon Jesus. Not only Him feeling the weight of our sin, but also feeling and having all of the Father's wrath upon Him that we deserved. He became sin. He became that filthy rag that was despised. He did that for us. Because we broke the law. So he took on and fulfilled the penalty of the law by becoming a sacrifice for us. And because Christ fulfilled the law, we can come to him by faith and find in him all that the law was actually unable to do. Christ fulfills the law. He becomes the penalty for our sin. And to Christ, by faith, we get in Christ all that the law could not do. What could the law not do? It could not save. Christ can. Praise God. Christ save people from their sins. The law could not do that. The law condemns. The law couldn't truly bring freedom, but Christ frees those whose faith is in him. True freedom. He brings freedom. Where the law leads to death, Christ leads to eternal life. Christ is eternal life. Romans 10.4 says, for Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Now what is that saying? It's not saying now those who believe in Christ have no place with the law and should not pay attention to the law. No, but it's the end of the law's demands that bring penalty, that bring condemnation, that bring death. What the law once required of you for righteousness, for pleasing God, no longer does because it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ is the end. You know how much hope or and freedom is in that statement? You know how many people search and search and search and search for things? And to just think about this statement: Christ is the end. Boom. Nothing else. You don't need anything else. Christ is the end. So maybe that's something that you're really wrestling with. Maybe it's maybe you are a Christian, but there's things that you are still in your flesh. Dealing with in your own strength, let Christ be the end of that struggle, the end of that striving in the flesh to please Him or other people. Let Christ be the end of your laboring and rest in Jesus Christ. We need to rest in Him. But even with all of this case that has been made, none of this is saying anything about the law not being good or or being purposeful or necessary or a blessing. The law is still all of those things. We know God's law to be more than just rules and regulations that once bound us under sin. It is more than that, and I hope you see that. God's law tells us his heart. We see his will in his word, in his law. It tells us of his holiness because the standard is perfection. God's law teaches us Order and boundary. You know, children without boundaries, no good. No good. We learn that from God, do we not? That there is law, there is boundary, and he loves us. He disciplines those he loves. There's truth and there's grace. God's law was given in order to accomplish something in this world and in humanity only in Christ does that make sense. It all comes together in Christ. So the heathen, the non-believer, the opposer of Christ, says, how could God give these ridiculous rules that stifle my freedom? That's not the words of a Christian. The Christian says, and agrees with Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Moreover, by them, is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Those are the words that should come out of our mouth as believers in Christ, followers of God's new covenant purpose. How much so should this be more our confession through Christ than the psalmist who had yet to experience the freedom that we have through the risen Lord? Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, accomplishing all that the law required, now is our righteousness and freedom, should we not even more so agree with the psalmist who says, this law, this book, all of your precepts are good and true, better than honeycomb. Anybody like honeycomb? If you don't like honeycomb, pick a different food. All right, just make it work. (laughs) But you know what the scripture is saying. We should have this desire, this deep desire to love the, Lord, the Lord's law, God's word. It is good for us. Now what needs to be understood by everyone listening this morning is that the law is good and right and true, but it must be understood in relation to what Christ has done for us, what he has done. So Matthew 5, really he's beginning to teach his interpretation of the moral law. Once we into next week, or excuse me, the week after, because we have a guest speaker coming next week, by the way. Um, after that, we'll get into what, you, what you've probably read so many times as Jesus begins to address anger and lust and divorce and how to make oaths and what about loving your enemy and what about retaliation, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he starts individually picking out pieces of the law and he interprets it rightly in a way that the Pharisees and those, those that were supposedly the law experts of those days, they missed it completely. Jesus interprets the law perfectly. So as he begins to do this, we should be able to look at Christ and say, "This is the interpretation of the law. This is how we are to believe it." Remember Jesus is actually the one who wrote the law. He's the eternal God. He is God in human flesh. He didn't just come along later and say, "I agree with that." No, he he wrote it. It's his. That's what we believe as evangelical Christians. Christ is the eternal, begotten, only begotten Son of God. He has always existed. He is one with the Father and one with the Spirit. He is the author of the law. He's not abolishing it or changing it. He's interpreting it for us to understand as those who will exist under the new covenant of grace. So he gives us a better interpretation. There is no part of us that should say, I'm a Christian. So I don't have to keep the law. There's no part of us that should ever say that. That would contradict what Jesus says, even in verse 19 of this text. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes or breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He just tells us, don't think that you are allowed to break the law in the sense that so many say. If you break the law and teach others that even the least important one can be broken, whatever is least significant, he's saying if you do that and lead others to do the same, you are considered least in the kingdom. You understand that when we read words of Jesus like this, we can actually believe him. There clearly is a, not, a, not a rank as in a class, but definitely a differentiation between least and greatest. He says it so many times. Just ask yourself, as a follower of Jesus, do I want to be least in the kingdom? What person would say I want to be least in Christ's kingdom? Now, don't play the humility card. No, no, I want to be least in the kingdom because the last will be first. Not in that case. That's not what he's talking about. This is saying, I don't view this as great. Not le- No, greatest in the kingdom are those who are servants and according to Christ, those who love the law and teach others to keep it. That's what Jesus says. Rather, Christians are to do and teach what Jesus has said and how he has interpreted the law for us. And so remember... What we're about to discover in Christ's rendering of these Old Testament commands as we move on is not that legalism is the way, that's not how he's going to interpret it, but that Christ is the way. He's saying, I am the way. If you take it all collectively, what Scripture teaches, he's saying, look to me. He's not saying, look to the law, look to how you can keep it. He's saying it's important, but who do you look to? Jesus Christ. You look to him. You look at him. You make him the center of your life and your focus. Look to Christ. Jesus is not saying that every command of the Old Testament is equally as applicable to us today as it was to the Jews then. That's not the case. We know that's not the case. But when we look at Christ, what we in fact see is an even higher standard we see perfection, and we see truth and love and obedience. So the message for us isn't primarily do the law. What is the message for us, guys? Not do, but what? Anybody know? Somebody said it? Believe. Yes. It's not so much do, it's believe. That's the message of the new covenant. Believe in Christ. Believe. We're not looking at a list of rules to follow. The commands are good and pure and right, but our concern is primarily to believe, and that's how Christ changes everything. He gives us the sweetness of the law without the condemnation. The sweetness of the law. But he also lets us experience gracious conviction of sin by his spirit when we come under the teaching of his law, of his word. And that happens by the spirit that operates in this world and is within every believer. Don't despise conviction. Don't despise conviction. Finally, look at these last words of Jesus. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, whoa. Extremely strong words. We should take that seriously. This could sound a little concerning, and it should for some. It really should. But even more so to the crowd standing around him at that time, it would have sounded probably a little bit concerning to them. Culturally, we don't understand what it's like to have scribes and Pharisees wandering around everywhere. These guys were the elite. They were the elite. They knew the law. And in fact, there was a respect given. Most people looked at them and thought, I could never attain to what they do. Jesus said they would find uh, on the ground a, a little piece of mint, a little leaf, and they would tithe that mint. How many of you tied the little scraps you find on the ground? Nobody. That's how serious. They kept every little... They, and, they, and they had them all. They had all the laws written down. 613 laws. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the laws that they found in the Old Testament. And they sought to keep them. So you see a Pharisee or a scribe walking around and you say, I'll never attain their righteousness. That's how you need to think about this. That's what it would have been like to say... Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribe and the Pharisee. So it would have been a big, a big gasp went through the crowd at that point. Well, then who can enter the kingdom of heaven? That is the standard of heaven, though. It's a righteousness that exceeds that of the law, of the scribes and the Pharisees. Righteousness that exceeds the rigorous law keeping of the most religious scribes of that day. How are you doing with that? Accomplishing that kind of righteousness. So what chance is there? I know you know, believers in the room, you know. You know where your assurance lies. Notice one thing that this statement does. By saying what he just said, he even tells the scribes and Pharisees that their righteousness is not enough. By saying your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying to those scribes and Pharisees that may be listening that often in his crowd, in his teachings, there were people hearing with an earshot, and you know that they hated what he had to say. These are the words that bring crucifixion to somebody. They were saying, Your righteousness isn't enough to the scribe and the Pharisee. So what's he saying to to them and to us? There is a new kind of righteousness that cannot be attained by keeping the law. And that's what Jesus is preaching. A kind of righteousness that cannot be attained by law keeping. There's an inward righteousness now that cleanses the heart and makes us new on the inside. Whereas the law of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were whitewashed sepulchers, Jesus said. It was the outside of the cup that was washed. It was a beauty that was outside, but their inward heart was corrupt of sin. So what he's saying is that there's a gospel, there's a new righteousness, there's a righteousness that exceeds any amount of loving that anyone could do, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's Christ's righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of any person on earth. That's the only kind that exceeds. Turn to Romans 3, and we'll finish up with just reading this text. Romans 3.21. This should help bring it all to a close about righteousness and this righteousness according to grace. Romans 3, 3.21. It says, But now... all along was to fulfill the law all of its penalties all of its demands in Jesus and make Christ the center of attention so that all who put faith in Christ are justified made right through his righteousness his merits his work and God remains the just God that he is never letting sin go unpunished by punishing his son Jesus on our behalf substitutionary atonement he became the sacrifice for us He is the just and the justifier. God is just and he justified. And what do we get from this? The free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Praise Praise God. You can live in freedom. You can. This should be a heavy weight off of all of us. To believe in Christ and just say, I believe this. You are the just one and you justify the sinner freely. So I believe, if you believe in him, you are freedom. Guys, God is saving people's lives. He is saving souls this very moment. He's saving souls all around the world. You want to know how that happens? Through the gospel. As a person comes to the end of themselves and says, Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. He is the righteousness of God. And how desperately do we, unrighteous, sinful people, need the righteousness of Christ? If you have this weight upon you, I just pray today you would believe in Christ. Put your faith in him, trust in him. Enough of the games. Enough playing around with the world and playing Russian roulette with the time that you have in your life. The answer is Jesus Christ. Every single time, the answer is the gospel every single time. So we we need to believe and trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Thank You so much for clarifying to us through Your Word our desperate need. We cannot keep the law. We are unable to do what Christ alone did to live perfectly in this world, to never disobey, never miss one One beat of what your law demanded. And so we look to Jesus today. We look at his perfect life. And we understand we needed a perfect sacrifice, one who was without sin. Thank you that that Christ, you went to the cross. Thank you for suffering for us as our substitute. I pray, Lord, that we would find freedom. Today, that there would be no clinging to the love that we have for self or the love that we have for the world. The flesh would be made so uncomfortable. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would bring conviction of sin, make aware in people's hearts and minds, including my own, our need for your word to penetrate our hearts regularly on a daily basis, that we would experience the conviction of sin and the discipline of a loving Father. Help us, Lord. Help us where we are weak. I pray that you would save the broken and that you would bind up those who are brokenhearted, that you would mend the spiritual need that is deep in people's hearts, Lord. That you would heal families, that you would heal marriages, that you would bring wholeness to people's hearts and minds that need it desperately. That today we would just be clinging to Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you are for us, Lord, and for all that you have done. We fall short. You exceed every expectation. You are good. You are holy. You are right. Thank you, our Creator, our Father. Thank you for sending your Son for us to die and suffer and rise again to be victorious over death and Satan himself, Lord. We give you the praise and we pray that our hearts would just respond rightly and righteously and obediently. That none in this room would be so stubborn as to say, This message means nothing for me. Your message means nothing for me. That, Lord, you would break through that hardness and bring a softness and a love and and an obedience that comes only by your spirit and by your power. So Lord, do that work now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church Podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.